Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of At War, the podcast by the Conflict Law Center. Today, we are very, very happy to have with us Professor Henrik Spreidem, who is a professor of international law at the University of Johannesburg. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. So we're going to be talking about uh, the proceedings between South Africa and Israel before the International Court of Justice. Um, and I wanted to just start off by asking you how you think both sides did in the proceedings in terms of both the style and the substance in terms of their arguments and advocacy before the court. Yeah, I think that both, um, both of the teams acted uh, very professionally in the presentation of the case. Um, it were, both teams were very well prepared. And uh, they substantiated um, uh, the arguments that they put forward, submitted to the court. Yeah, and I think from South Africa's uh, point of view, it has at least made out uh, a plausible case uh, for Israel to answer. I think that should be clear. Uh, I do not think that South Africa will get all the interim measures that it is asking for, because some may, may be highly problematic. Uh, and I think on the other side, uh, Israel has, has done has done well uh, to to put forward some critical issues, which may uh, may raise some question marks about uh, some of the allegations. One of them is whether there was indeed a dispute between the parties, right. uh, which, as you know, is required for the court to assume jurisdiction under the Genocide Convention, and then the the crucial issue in the whole debate is the one about whether there's direct intent or genocidal intent, as it was uh, frequently referred to in the proceedings. So, and that is uh, a matter for the court now to decide. The, the facts are before the court. Uh, the, the application is before the court. The evidence is before the court. So, um, it will be interesting to see how the court is to go. It will negotiate with these crucial issues uh, and what the outcome will be. I think it is one of the most important cases in a long time before the ICJ. Yeah. And we can see it from the international interest uh, in, in the matter. Yeah, I think it was very interesting that all sorts of people were then following the proceedings, and I don't think they'd ever followed ICJ proceedings before. Um, so definitely in terms of all eyes being on the International Court of Justice right now. I think the, the conversation and the arguments made about a dispute were really interesting um, because I think usually from what I've seen of the, the ICJ's case law, is if you've got a dispute and if you've got a note for a file, the, the ICJ usually errs on the side of there being a dispute rather than not. But perhaps yes. Israel was introducing a new criteria, which is the time to respond. Um, and I wonder how the ICJ will handle that addition. Yeah, you're perfectly correct uh, on that point. Um, you know, um, the sort of time or the date on which it must determine where there was a dispute is the date of the application. Um, right. uh, in this regard, uh, it's Israel, Israel's case that uh, there was still an opportunity for bilateral negotiations between mm -hmm. the parties, and the, they made a request for that. Um, and after they've done so, the next day, South Africa submitted the application, uh, the written application to court. And only a few days later did South Africa respond to that request, saying that uh, it serves no purpose. So I think that may be uh, an issue that places a question mark 
on whether um, the, the conditions for the dispute have been complied with. Uh, but once again, uh, you're also right in saying that uh, there is a tendency to err on the side of, of a dispute. And the other reason why you might be perfectly correct is because of the seriousness of the case. Uh, we sit here with um, a humanitarian crisis of, of epic proportions, uh, of daily destruction, uh, the, the disproportionate number of people killed. And I think the, everybody agrees that there is an urgency to the matter uh, in, in trying to find a way in mitigating the consequences of uh, Israel's uh, military campaign. Uh, I think everybody is aware of that. Uh, so that might also um, you know, play a role uh, for the court in deciding whether, in fact, there is a dispute before the court and it must be decided. Yeah, and coming to the the request for uh, provisional orders that South Africa has given, the very controversial one, and perhaps the one that we have less precedent on, is is that to halt military operations. So, how likely do you think it is going to be that uh, the ICJ will decide that Russia Ukraine, where we did order that, was a very very different situation, and we really don't want to work wade into Mercian? issues of the right of Israel to self-defense here, so let's sidestep that issue, really. Yeah, that is one of the, I think that's the first uh, order South Africa is seeking, yeah. is to for the hostilities to come to an end. And I think South Africa is not going to be successful with that. The reason why I'm saying so is, as long as the hostilities are ongoing and the Hamas threat is still in place, Israel has a legitimate right to self-defense. If it stops the hostilities now, it has no defense against further attacks by Hamas. So even if the court decides to grant that order, I think the chances are very good that Israel will not comply with it. Right. right. For instance, if we if we compare that with the uh, Ukraine-Russia case before the court, where a similar order was sought, and uh, it was granted, uh, and Russia just decided to ignore it. So the the threat in this case, and we must remember that in, in the case of, of Ukraine versus Russia, Russia is the aggressor. Yeah. It is waging a war of aggression against Ukraine. Here, uh, at least initially, Israel responded in self-defense against an attack. It was a victim of an attack. So it has a stronger leg to stand on. Um, should uh, the court decide to grant that first interim order South Africa is, is uh, requesting from the court. Yeah, I, and I think um, in South Africa's proceedings, they tried to preempt that issue of self-defense by referring to the wall advisory opinion where the court, in, in very uh, ambiguous language, did say you don't have the right to self-defense in territory that you occupy. And I think that will be yeah. one of the major things that we're looking at when it comes to the merit stage, even if they don't address that in the provisional order stage. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I have to I have to here uh, refer back to the Israel war case, <clears throat> and in that matter, uh, that, that was an advisory opinion by the ICJ uh, on whether the the security wall. Um, 
Israel uh, uh, was was building in parts of the occupied territories could be justified under Article Fifty One, self defense, yeah, uh, provision, and the the court decided, I think, wrongly in in that regard. Um, it first of all says that um, the the assault or the attack or the threat comes from from inside Israel and not from outside. So, and that is totally wrong. This there's a political and territorial distinction between Israel and the occupied territories. The fact that you occupy a, a piece of land doesn't mean that you have incorporated it or that you that you annexed it. So you need something more than that. Uh, and it is clear that um, we're talking about two different territories. Yeah, yeah, so that reason that the, the court gave was is false, and even in the in the Israel war case, the the language or the terminology used by the court supports what I just said. It referred to the right of self determination by the Palestinians, uh, of the application of international humanitarian law in the occupied territories. Yeah. Uh, so that already gives us an indication that the court was talking about two different political components. So I and I think what happened afterwards with the um, the other cases, uh, the court will not sort of you know use that reasoning again, mm -hmm. uh, and the chances are good uh, that the court will here decide that okay, the threat comes from a uh, from a different uh, territorial um, element, uh, and that it constitutes a threat which will be classified or could be classified as a threat under Article 51 of the UN Charter. Yeah, I, I also want that clarified, but I think I, I argue on the opposite side of you that there is yeah. the right to defense in, in occupied territory and the law of occupation holds the field there. Um, but it is going to be very interesting to see how mm. the ICJ, both in the upcoming advisory opinion, but also in this contentious yes. meetings, yeah. um, how it how it decides the these very very great issues and yeah. very complicated issues yeah. and I wanted to come to um, the declaration by Germany that it would be submitting an intervention in these proceedings and the ways in which Germany and also the UK are kind of constrained by something that they've already said in the Gambia versus Myanmar case which is that uh, they've already intervened in those. So the extent to which they're going to be bound by that, because from what I can tell, uh, they've argued that a pattern of conduct can lead to an assumption of genocidal intent. Sorry, I just missed the first part of your uh, response there. What conduct? Um, it, uh, the, a pattern of conduct. Oh, the pattern of conduct. Yeah. 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 As I understand um, Germany's point here, it, it's only intervening on the merits case, mm -hmm. not on the interim measures. Right. So, and it has and it has indicated that its sole purpose for intervening is to show that there is no genocidal intent mm -hmm. on the part of Israel. So, it will focus. Uh, I think, if I can take that statement seriously, they will focus on on whether, from what has happened and from the factual situation we can infer or whether it's the only reasonable inference to say, yes, there was genocidal intent. And I think that will determine the nature and the scope of, of Germany's uh, intervention uh, on the merits. Yeah, and, and when it comes to um, 
we'll talk about the merits, but even about the provisional order, um, how likely do you think that any kind of provisional order, because I do expect that they'll give a protective one like they did in the Myanmar case. How, how likely do you think it is that it's going to be enforced or it's going to be ignored by Israel? And how can the international community ensure that it is enforced? Yeah, the, uh, the danger of Israel ignoring the court's uh, order, or some of it at least, um, depends on the nature of the order. So if the, if the court sort of overreaches and it, it provides an order that is perhaps too extreme and impacts uh, too severely on, on the sovereignty of Israel and on what it needs to do now, it is very likely that Israel will ignore and not comply. So the court here must very carefully consider what orders may be acceptable mm -hmm. by Israel uh, and then formulate it in such a way that uh, there is a good chance at least that Israel will comply. So there's a very important responsibility that rests on the court here not to overreach. Otherwise, there's no meaning in providing an order that from, from the from the beginning, uh, the state who is to comply with it will, will ignore it. Um, like Russia who ignored the, um, uh, the order to stop the hostilities against Ukraine. It's just one example. But your, the other part of your question is important, namely, uh, what can the international community do uh, if there is non-compliance by Israel with the court's interim orders? Okay, then, of course, the next avenue is for the case to be referred to the Security Council. But that is potentially also a dead end because yeah. the danger is there that the United States will veto any decision that is taken by the Security Council, which is detrimental to Israel's position. So that is unfortunately the situation that uh, we have to take into account and which we can, and a possibility that we cannot ignore. Uh, the question then is whether outside the Security Council, states can put uh, diplomatic pressure in some way or another on Israel to comply, or to comply at least to a certain extent with the orders. So there is also, I think, an obligation on the, on the larger or broader international community to act upon the orders that the court may decide to give. Yeah. in order to see that there is some compliance uh, in some way uh, to mitigate the, the threats that the um, civilian population is exposed to on a, on, a, on a daily basis and the destruction of civilian property and so on. So that would be very interesting to see uh, how the court is going to deal with this very, very thorny matter and what will be the outcome of the case. Yeah, and, and fast forwarding to the merits of the case, how likely do we think that there will be a finding that Israel has violated its obligations under the Genocide Convention? My assessment is there is a slight possibility. It's not okay. more than 50. It's not more than 50%. Right. And that's my feeling. That's my feeling of, of how things stand at the moment. You see, what makes it all uh, also difficult to to be more accurate about a, a potential outcome is the fact that 
the court has evidence that we do not have as right. outsiders. So there is already yeah. evidence before the court, uh, apart from what was presented by the parties, orally or uh, written in, in a written fashion. So, and there is now also further opportunity for the court to uh, to obtain more evidence. Um, it can, at this point of the proceedings, uh, still contact the, the, the parties and, and ask for more explanation on this and that. Or mm -hmm. it can also, from other sources, obtain information. So that makes it difficult, but as things stand now, I cannot say that there's a, a bigger chance than 50% than of the court uh, making that gradually. Yeah, and I think it's such a difficult case to prove because genocide is such... Is the hardest international crime of all of them. It is. I fully agree with you on that. It is a very difficult uh, thing to prove, the, you know, direct intent because that is what is required. Um, and the, the complexity of this conflict makes it even more difficult. Yeah. For instance, it, it is different if you come by way of comparison, just one, mention one, um, one uh, historical example, the Srebrenica. Uh, genocide mm -hmm. um, and the uh, the Rwanda situation. Uh, so there are more there are more sort of um, various aspects which may impact on whether you there is direct intent or not. So um, that is why I, I I made the estimate as I've as I've done. Yeah, and, and I think I, I side with you and Erin on the side of caution as well, because when it comes to Myanmar, we had UN independent fact-finding mission, the report that the Gambia yeah. relied so heavily in its application, yeah. and we don't have any anything of that sort here. Yeah. But perhaps yeah. by the merit stage, because it's likely that this will go on for years and years, we might have something in, by then. Yeah, yeah. yeah I... I... Perhaps I could just mention that in closing, um, you know, what is also before the court now are the, uh, I think about 15 reports by UN bodies and special rapporteurs mm -hmm. uh, of, of past conflicts and what happened. So um, that evidence definitely, um, or, or the pattern that those uh, reports exposed are well aligned with what is happening in this conflict. So, right. and I think, and I think mm -hmm. those those reports are will certainly be be considered by the court on the merits phase, mm -hmm. um, because they they all have the same pattern. Right. And then it for and then it's for the court to decide how it's going to interpret that uh, in order to come to a conclusion whether there is direct intent or not. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And and perhaps we can have this conversation again once the, the order comes sure. out. But thank you yeah, so much for taking out the time to talk to us. Thank you, and I wish you all the best. Yeah, thank you so much. And thank you so much for watching at home.